Welcome, CKTH Podcast 4. I'm John V. Campbell. Today I'm talking to Vince Pacente, Olympic caliber skier from Canada, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author. We cover his journey in sports and in writing, as well as his new book that talks about navigating chaos with curiosity and creativity. Enjoy. Right, Vince. So, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to get on the pod. Um, where are you tuning in from? I'm in Dallas in our uh, in our isolated back house. <laughs> so we're uh, we're as we're recording this, it's during the pandemic lock in, if you will. Um, and I'm here with my family. Actually, I've got three college age kids. They're they're all home as well, and uh, they're eating all my food and drinking all my beer. <laughs> that makes sense. Good for them. That's what they should be doing. Um, and and uh, where? So you're in Dallas now, but to kind of take it all the way back, you are from where originally? Oh, I'm a Canadian. I uh, I grew up in Canada. I lived my first 34, 35 years in Canada, and uh, now I live in Dallas. I married a Texas gal, so that's what brought me down here. Does that make you a Cowboys fan? Yes, it does. Kill go Cowboys. Do you hear that sucking sound? <laughs> That's coming from Dallas. <laughs> well, don't tell that to Jerry Jones. Well, he wouldn't listen. <laughs> well, hopefully the uh, hopefully the NFL season is able to sort of get into swing here. I mean, I, I do not know what they're expecting. I know, I know they're doing the draft this month, but after right. that, I, I don't know how they're planning on navigating all this. And I know that the NFL typically finds their way around all these sorts of things, but not certain that this is one of those cases. Well, all the sports franchises are getting hurt. And uh, I would think that the NFL is, uh, no, there'll be the, the, the damage to the NFL will be minimal. I believe. Hmm. That's interesting. Why, and why do you, why do you believe that? Well, their season is as the pandemic is really uh, loosening its grip. So I would think that they'll have some, um, the, the, the revenue through, through television and, uh, live games, that'll still likely happen, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to imagine that, the, like I said, that they're going to find a way, uh, as it seems like uh, they are good at doing, to sort of navigate this. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm a hockey fan, so I'm kind of missing the uh, the playoffs right now. This was the time, this was Dallas Stars season, but anyway, so be it. Yeah. We're all going to have to suffer a little bit. I think you're right. And hopefully we all kind of get through this as fast as possible. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. Hopefully technology catches up to the virus. But mm-hmm. uh, um, so uh, did you play football growing up in Canada? I mean, I know obviously you're a Olympic no. caliber skier, but no, no, no. I played hockey up until the age of 14 <clears throat> and I was never over five feet tall up until maybe 17 or 18, 17 years old. I started to get taller than five feet. But anyway, I was small and uh, my skills were average and I got killed every time I went into the corner as a winger. So I was more of a hockey player. The football side of things was, uh, you know, something I watched more than any CFL was what I watched in, uh, in Edmonton. Okay. All right. So that makes you an Oilers fan. Gretzky. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I guess 
I guess Messier played a couple of years with him up there, right? <laughs> he definitely did. Yeah. yeah, it was fun to watch all those guys. I mean, it was just amazing. The goaltending was amazing. Everything. It was great uh, in those Stanley Cup years in the Edmonton Oilers uh, history. Yeah, no, I, I, I being somebody who is a uh, you know native Southern Californian, so I'm a bit of an outsider to. Oh. Yeah. The inner, san- inner sanctums of hockey. Um, in college, I was uh, in the hockey, the ice hockey f- uh, fraternity at Dartmouth, and oh, really? huh. uh, yeah, so I ended up learning quite a bit. We had a, we had a couple guys in the house that that were drafted, actually top top five. One guy, who? Um, well, there's a gentleman Her- named Hugh Jessman who got drafted. I think it was number four overall, but. Uh-huh. Uh, the dark horse candidate for the Dartmouth team that en- ended up winning, uh, going on to have a pretty successful NHL career is a guy named Lee Stepniak. Okay, got it. Yeah, and he played for the Rangers for a number of years and great yeah. guy. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, okay, so, you know, you, you got into skiing. You know, talk about your family background a little bit because, uh, I mean, like, you know, did your parents really push you into becoming a, a ski racer? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> in fact, I didn't really get on skis until in the mountains until the age of what was I about 13, 14. Um, my parents w- weren't skiers at all. I mean, I remember one Christmas that they bought us some wood skis and, uh, <clears throat> you know, we went to the local, you know, this is in Edmonton. So we went to the local golf course on the seventh hole where it was a lot of hills and just went down there. And that was, that's not skiing. That's just going down a hill with boards on your feet. But, um, it well, really, my racing career didn't start until I decided at 26 years old to start ski racing. So the, the ski race, the skiing and the ski racing was a uh, happenstance until I realized, wouldn't it be cool to be in the Olympic games? And that was, uh, that's a whole other story, of course. Yeah. So, so walk me through that because obviously no matter what sport you're talking about, most people don't get to the uh, Olympic level in anything at, at, at 26, you know, they're, Mm -hmm. they're starting that journey a lot earlier. Yeah. The, the, uh, well, the, actually the story starts when a buddy of mine walked up to me and said, Hey, you want to try luge? Now, I was living in Edmonton at the time. Calgary, three hours south of us, was going to host the Olympic Winter Games in 88. I think I was approached back in 83 to try luge and um, did it for, I don't know, a year or so. And then ended up, uh, no, no, gosh, that was 80. Yeah, it was 83. And then um, quit. And I had a ticket for the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Calgary and the guys I'd been racing against who didn't quit, they were marching in the opening ceremonies and I was in the stands with a ticket. Wow. And you know that realization when you realize you've made a mistake or that sting of regret? It's um, called FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> well, big time, because I was, uh, I'm not saying I know I would have made the Olympic luge team, but to this day, I don't know. And so it was at that age of 26 that I realized you won't know unless you try, unless you step in. And so... I started ski racing um, in uh, tried out. I knew speed skiing would be in the Olympics four years after Calgary. And speed skiing is straight down, no turns, uh, zero to 60 miles an hour in three seconds. You're up to 125 miles an hour in eight seconds. I mean, it's straight down, Darth Vader style helmets, right? skin tight rubber suits. And so I thought, you know what? Why not just quit everything? 
take a run at this and then I won't have any of that FOMO, any of that regret. Well, that I mean, obviously, you're happy that you did. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what would you say is your personal, like, you know, is it a certain day or, um, just a, you know, a smaller moment that you believe was kind of your own personal apex, uh, in that journey? Wow. There's a bunch of them. Uh, I would say looking back the first apex, if you will, was, the relief of just stepping into something that was so uncertain. I mean, I, I decided to keep moving forward. And there were two kinds of people in my world. One kind, they say, what are you up to? And I say, well, I'm, I'm ski racing because I want to make the Olympics. And one kind of uh, type of person would say, oh, that's nice. You know, <laughs> inside they're going, are you off your rocker? Sure, of course. Of <laughs> and course. then the other kind would say, oh, how are you going to do that? And so one was full of judgment. The other was full of questions. And I think that's maybe our responsibility as citizens, as uh, family members, as spouses, as, you know, friends, or even just an inner circle is to let go of judgment and just ask questions. I mean, that's their deal, their, their journey. And so to answer that question, maybe the apex was the first one was to step into it and into the unknown. And then, you know, we figure it out along we, that we're the way. It's the human condition. We just figure it out as we go. Um, shoot. I, I, another one was maybe the three years into this, I went to my the big World Cup at Lazark, the Olympic track, and placed fifth in those that World Cup the year before the Olympic Games. So I realized I was well positioned to not just be in the Olympics, but also uh, quite possibly win a medal. I mean, what a feeling, what a feeling of uh, great expectations that that's got to be for any event. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, does, doesn't it feel great to work towards something and you really we're guessing our way along? I mean, John, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur. You know what it feels like to move forward on something. You don't exactly know how this business should be put together of yours. You don't know exactly every single step along the way. But it's in hindsight that you look back and go, huh, you know, I, I feel good that I just stepped into it, that I made my best. And some of these guesses worked, you know, so and some didn't, but you let go of those and move on. I mean, so, yeah, it does feel good. No, that's such a, um, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, there's a excitement in the unknown, um, you know, um, not to sound cliche, but Mike Tyson has the great quote of everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You know, and, and after that, you know, it's kind of on you to kind of continue on with the fight or the process or whatever that may be. Um, you know, getting back to what you were saying about just preparing for those cups and things like that, you know, um, mental health or mental strength, I think I should probably instead sort of say is such a massive thing in sports, um, in business and in life. And, um, you know, I mean, it's become even a, a bigger, I think, thing in sports lately with, you know, athletes like Kevin Love and the NBA being just like a lot more open about various challenges, anxieties, whatever. Um, and like, I don't know, I mean, you, uh, you're somebody that it's, that's truly studied the the mental game and the the psychology that, that are in that's in and out of sports and uh especially being on skis you know you beyond everybody understand like how these things are measured by fractions of a fraction and you know it, it truly is a game of inches and so like talk about how you've kind of learned to take that um experience of b going downhill 
you know, a uh, hundred plus miles an hour and then translating that into a, into the mental game. Yeah. This, uh, that's a great question. The, the, the journey to get to the Olympic games start when you start ski racing at 26 years old, you cannot catch up physically to other athletes who have been doing this for 20 years, 25 years, right? They had such a head start, but it, this philosophy of the way everybody competes is they try and do what the competition's not doing. So you look at who your competition is, you identify what they're doing and you say, okay, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to have better customer service. I'm going to have a better product. I'm going to have a better delivery. I'm going to have faster turnaround, higher quality, all this kind of stuff. But that's what the competition is doing at the exact same time as well. And so at 26, when I knew they had a physical head start, I knew the advantage was to do what the competition is not willing to do in the mental training side of things. And so in that four-year journey, I amped up the amount of phys- mental training to over two hours a day of just mental training. Wow. Uh, and, and, and that was all based on research at, of all things, the library. I mean, I would go to the library, find a book on mental training, read it voraciously within three weeks, bring that book back because that's when books are due back and then get another book on mental training and another book on mental training. And each three week cycle, I was getting, you know, a master's PhD level of, of, of mental training for athletes. But in a practical sense, I was using these mental training strategies on the mountain against guys that have been racing for 20, 25 years. In my first year on the World Cup circuit, after three World Cup races, now I appreciate it, I've never ski raced before. I was an, an intermediate skier. And the first two years, after two years in the Olympic, um, uh, in this pursuit to, for the Olympics, I was ranked 10th in the world. Wow. How do you do that? How, do, how does one do that physically? Well, it wasn't physical, it was mental. It was all about the mindset necessary and it was after the Olympic Games, I came across this research that has since turned into a book actually called The Ant and the Elephant. And so very quickly, the, in this research by Dr. Lee Poulos, he found that in a second of time, your conscious mind is processing with 2,000 neurons. So 2,000 neurons in your brain are processing what I have to say. It might make sense to you. You might be enjoying this. In the same second, your subconscious mind is processing with 4 billion neurons with a B. (laughs) So 2,000 conscious, 4 billion subconscious, sub meaning below consciousness. So this, this, who's in control, the conscious or subconscious mind? Well, clearly the subconscious. So the, the, the premise here, if you want to distill it down to one fact, you'll gravitate to that which you believe to be true. Mm. So why not be the architect for that truth? Why not establish what that truth is for you at a subconscious level? And so jumping back to this Olympic story, over two hours a day of mental training, and you'd have to be a head of lettuce to just think about this for over two hours a day, of <laughs> for course. every day for three years. So I did different avenues to the same end, which was things like meditation, uh, biofeedback, uh, I got in a sensory deprivation float tank. I did uh, developed a hypnosis program specific for speed skiing and then used the hypnosis program in the sensory deprivation float tank and then used uh, anchoring and used flashcards. I mean, there were so many mental training strategies pulled from this research at the library, all because you're doing what the competition is not willing to do. 
Right. Like how many athletes are going to the library researching this uh, uh, week after week after week? I mean, they're not. And so only the best ones, probably. Uh, the, even the best ones were uh, the top 10 racers in the world may had some sort of mental training strategy, but it was haphazard. And my motivation was very, very um, um, over. I've yet to meet an athlete that spends less time physical training and more time mental training. I would completely agree with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the heroes of sports spend, you know, they're the ones that shut down the arena and they're shooting pucks in the net till they turn the power off. Or they're the ones, the first thing, first guy on the ice and last off or in football, you know, in terms of the ones that are, are, are first at practice and helping others, some of the rookies out and then last on the field, you know, throwing a few um, routine passes or whatever. So that's all uh, the physical side of it. The mental training side was the only choice I had. I, I'm not saying I was a, a, a smarter athlete. I was a, a desperate <laughs> for, for an advantage. And the only advantage I could see was through the mental training side. Well, now let's fast forward to answer your question. How have I applied this mental training in the, you know, since the Olympics? I, I mean, I, I'm in the Speaker Hall of Fame with people like Ronald Reagan, Ogmandino, Zig Ziglar, uh, Jim Rohn. I mean, those icons of the motivational speaking world. Uh, how does a guy, one of the youngest inductees into the Speaker Hall of Fame, get there? Well, the exact same formula I used to get to the Olympic Games. That's how. Um, you know, I have New York Times bestselling book. Well, how did that happen? Well, did it happen by chance? Am I some lucky guy? No, it was a mental training strategy. You'll gravitate to that which you believe to be true. So my question, everybody listening is, are you the architect for that truth? Right. Are you the architect for your truth? Are you are you purposely designing a truth that has an emotional buzz attached to it where it's so clear that you see it, smell it, taste it, touch it? You have the five senses. You have a visceral feeling from that uh, that that truth that you're establishing. And so uh, it is such an important piece of winning in a competitive landscape. No, uh, I I. Thoroughly enjoyed your book, Ant the Elephant. I I read it um, back in 2012. Um, I had learned about it from uh, reading about it in Sports Illustrated. You know, uh, famously, LeBron James credited your book, Ant the Elephant, with um, helping him reach his first championship goal it, with the Miami Heat after suffering a defeat against uh, the Dallas Mavericks the previous season, his first with the Miami Heat. And um, I can uh, absolutely attest to the fact that your book, um, whether it's LeBron in Miami or or me being a young guy running running a new business that I founded, um, your book is was was instrumental in teaching me the 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 vital need to align what you were saying about the subconscious and the conscious state, and you know to find that elephant buzz. Uh, as it's referred to in, in the book, that buzz where it, where you just know that you're sort of landing on the right sweet spot for yourself. Right. So what would you, um, I mean, I obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty. I think the, the, the expression of, of architecting your personal truth there's um, I think I read that there's 11,000 Olympic athletes right now that are needing to, con to continue to stay on the grind between you know, this upcoming summer, which would have been, you know, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, and now opening ceremonies is suddenly pushed back to July 23 of next year. 
what kind of challenges do you think uh, that those Olympic athletes are facing and how would you how would you instruct them to sort of navigate that next year for their lives? Yeah, that thought, that's a great question, too. I mean, these these athletes, uh, uh, Olympic athletes and their coaches and their infrastructure have all established the optimal peak of their physical output. They know that the things they did months ago and then weeks back progressively had led them to peak at this very, very time. And so that peaking regime has been interrupted a couple months in advance. So they all of a sudden go, okay, got it. Now I recalibrate. I really don't think it'll affect any of them. Uh, There is susceptibility to injury. Uh, There is susceptibility to um, uh, frustration and feeling like, uh, well, that was my time. Um, There are some up and comers that needed a few more months in order to really establish their footing. So, yeah, it's it's been a game changer for all of them, but it really is a game changer for all of them. (laughs) So let's uh, let you know, the, the ones that are mentally strong, the ones that have established that recalibration early. Um, one thing I, I would recommend is take a break. I mean, as soon as this was established as a, uh, a time to reset and aim for 2021, uh, my advice would be to not do anything is to hang out, eat donuts and, <laughs> and just take a couple of weeks and, and, re- and get your mind back. It gets recentered. I mean, it, it, there's a, there's a pivot that has to happen. And the ones that pivot in desperation and say, okay, 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 I got, I got another year. I'm going to just amp it up even more. I really can't see them serving themselves. And, you know, I'm kidding about the donut. I'm sure some of them are more disciplined than, than that. But uh, you know what I mean? It's just step back of course, and have a chance to say, okay, okay, now we've got 13, 14 months. How are we going to approach this? No, that makes sense. You know, I think that anybody who's doing something at at that sort of elite level, um, they're probably obsessive about keeping the blade pretty sharp, you know, and and, and yeah. I think probably terrified to see that blade get get any less sharp at any point in time. Um, you know, and and you of course switching gears here a little bit, you know, to from you as an athlete and you as a speaker to you as a writer. And, um, you know, that's obviously a skill that you need to keep very, very sharp. Um, when, you know, yeah. when did you kind of start segueing? Obviously you've read all these books about mental training, but when did you start to apply that and start writing books? You know, because that's, that's a massive journey for most people, you know, it yeah. takes them sort of their entire lives to do. Uh, yeah, that's the, the, the journey as an author is very similar to any journey that we all take. Because we can step and commit to something. My first book uh, came out of somebody. A clients kept saying, "Well, you don't have a book. Where's your book? We'd like to. We, we'd like to. We'd like to buy your books for everybody. I mean, you don't have a book." So I went, "All right, I'll write a book." And so you know, I took a course on how to write a book through Diana Boer, B O O H E R. She uh, it just changed my life in terms of how to get a book done. That was a pretty good book, but that that first book is that path of commitment that we all have where you step in and you say, okay, I'm in, I'm going to get into this. And then you realize the level of commitment necessary. Um, 
I would say it's similar to marriage. I mean, you walk down the aisle on a Saturday and commit. So you're in, you've put a lot of thought into this commitment. You've got months, maybe years leading up to this. I do, but it isn't until you're in it that you realize the level of commitment necessary and how commitment is not episodic. It's not that moment. It is a process of re-upping. It's a process. And that re-upping is raising your level of commitment. Um, a quick story is I went to, uh, I committed to speed skiing. I was racing. I was uh, winning some local races. I won the national Canadian national championships. And then there was an international FIS race, the international ski federation. And they had, um, it was a B level FIS race, but it was a lot of guys that were aspirational in nature, hoping to make their Olympic, their national team or on their national team, hoping to make their Olympic team as Olympic qualifying standards. You know, in those two races in in Finland and Scandinavia, um, I placed sixtieth uh, in one race and I think seventieth and some way way down, and it ended up being a realization that the level of commitment I'd already brought to this. Shoot, I, I quit my job. I'm in the sport. I'm I'm even flying all the way over to Scandinavia to race, and I realized my level of commitment wasn't high enough. wasn't profound enough. It wasn't uh, exceptional in nature. And so that's when I amped up my mental training over two hours a day. That's when I started to realize I really need, and it was desperation because the talk clock is ticking. I only got uh, two more years to try and get to those Olympics. And so it was, uh, when we step into something and raise our level of commitment, that's when you realize um, that you can accomplish something. So I don't know if that answered your question, but um, no, but I mean, you had, you had to do the exact same thing, switching gears into writing, you know, I mean like, Oh, right. Writing. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's all right. (laughs) You know, I think I have COVID brain because the other day I put the cream in with the coffee cups. (laughs) I was just so absent-minded. I don't know what's going on. So anyway, yeah, the book. So I wrote that first book and then I realized again, oh, wait, you've got to step up your game here. And so there was one subchapter in that first book, Invincible Principles, and that subchapter was called The Ant and the Elephant. And it was talking about the 2,000 neurons, 4 billion neurons and all that. And I said, and then I was I was stepping onto a plane, actually, of all things, to go to a speaking engagement. And I realized just this flash of clarity that this could be a parable. This could be a parable about the an ant, an actual ant, on the back of the elephant. The ant is the conscious mind. The elephant is the subconscious mind. The ant realizes it wants to get to the oasis, but it's not going to get to the oasis unless it gets the alignment from the subconscious mind. Well, the subconscious mind is made up of all sorts of patterns and uh, limiting beliefs and maybe self-destructive behavior and all this kind of, you know, psycho babble stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I'm certainly aware that we can be a victim to the human condition of patterns that don't set us up to, to succeed. In fact, set us up to fail, whether relationships or finance or in LeBron James case, you know, winning a championship finally, you know, this is to have an alignment between your ant and elephant in a parable to the, the, the patterns that are revealed in a parable about an elephant, imagining that he comes across all sorts of issues that happen in childhood or whatever, or new patterns of fear or stuff that's going to hold us back or no guarantee or saying, I don't want to fail or I don't want to be embarrassed. And all this stuff, if you had 2000 neurons and 4 billion neurons headed in the same direction, 
how extraordinary would that be? I'll take the four billion. And so that, what's that? I said, I'll take the four billion. Yeah. Well, you'll take the four billion if they're going in the right direction, sure, right? Of course. So this is this is the this is that journey of an author. Then I wrote that book. And as I, there were 14 iterations of that book. You know why? Because after the first one, I thought it was pretty good. And the editor said, no, we got to change this and change this. Okay, we'll change that. And it was 14 iterations later than I realized the level of commitment necessary <laughs> to get it to a quality product. Right. And so I didn't start off to be a good author. I will recommend a book uh, by Stephen King. And he wrote it this book for fellow authors. Now he's an extraordinary, maybe one of the world's most successful authors living today. For sure. Uh, he, he wrote a book to authors and I guess the advice, if you distill it down is you want to be a better writer, write, just write. You've got to write. And so then at that point I read that book and I went, you know what? He's right. So I raised my level of commitment and I wrote a, a weekly email. It was kind of around the time that blogs were just starting that it turned into blogs as well. But uh, every week I would write a five. Here are my limitations. I had to be more than 500 words. It had to be um, better than the last one that I wrote. And it had to have the reader go, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Okay, so I had to I had all those three constructs that I that each each time I wrote it. Now, this was week after week after week for four, maybe five years, I guess, of writing. You know what happens at the end of five years? You're a better writer. You know, so now I'm on my eighth book. Actually, I've got a sequel <laughs> to The Ant and the Elephant. It's called The Ant, Elephant and the Earthquake. So there you go. It's, uh, it's, it's I'm doing it again. So tell me so tell me about the earthquake coming in here, because, I mean, I, right. I, I know the parable about uh, Elgo and a deer pretty well. So yeah. being a loyal disciple well, here, God, tell me. <laughs> well, you've read the book. So as you can imagine in this parable, the ant and the elephant have a very linear path to reaching the goal of getting to their oasis. And the message to the reader is what's your oasis? What's that elephant buzz? What's that emotional buzz that you have in the future? Here are five things you can do to get there. So the book has those, a very prescriptive model to reach a goal, a big, huge, audacious, hairy goal, or whatever that is, big, hairy, audacious goal. Now, the ant, elephant, and earthquake is a sequel in that they go through an earthquake and they go through this massive setback right at the beginning of the book, and the life as they know it is not the same anymore. Is this sounding familiar to anybody going through this pandemic and lock in and all this? I mean, we don't even know how, and then there's fear and there's all this stuff of how we're going to be able to get through our own personal earthquake. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you're stuck in a house with a, with a spouse that you realize this is not going to last. <laughs> Maybe you are um, alone realizing, wait, I can't, I can't be alone. I have to be uh, with some more of a social creature. I need to be with her. whatever your earthquake is bankruptcy, you know, whatever health, cancer, getting the actual COVID-19. I mean, these earthquakes happen and our way out of these earthquakes it, it, it's trivial to say that you align your ant and elephant to get out of chaos. The elephant is scrambling. The subconscious mind is absolute in panic, freeze, fight, flight mode. Um, at the same time, the conscious mind, I know how to do this. I've got willpower. I'm going to drive my way out of this. Folks, that is not how it works. 
it, it, to have your ant and the elephant supersede chaos, to escape that that quagmire of stuckness, it happens in a very non-linear path and very much one of uh, curiosity and creativity. And the book dives into how we can use that formula in a very much a looping fashion where you loop around and realize, did that work? If it has traction, then it pops you out of stuckness. If you are in that stuckness and you, as you stay there, then wait a minute, it's, this isn't working. Uh, what else could I be curious about? What could I be creative with? And, um, and in the book, it talks a lot about the polarity of the relationship between your conscious and subconscious mind or the relationship in this book between the ant and the elephant having gone through this massive setback. So, uh, in the second book, um, do the ant and elephant, do they, do they have total recall of everything they've learned from the first one? Yeah. The total recall realizes that what they knew about reaching a goal isn't working in order to get out of chaos or to, to reestablish after a personal earthquake. The, 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 the rules don't apply. What got them to the oasis in the first place will not get them out of chaos. And that mm. is the human condition. That is why some of us will be able to jump out of this pandemic uh, setback of course. and be able to thrive. And some of us will stay stuck. And the damage that the longer you're stuck, the, the, the more the patterns are created. It, this is very much a, a telling time of how cerebral we can be, how uh, how much we can be the architect for a new truth. Uh, yet the, being the architect of a new truth in the midst of chaos, I don't know how to do that exactly. I, I know it's a process. I know that it's one where you, you have to measuredly climb. I mean, the last 15 years I've been climbing mountains, leading expeditions in the Himalayas. And um, shoot, I spent the first half of my life going downhill <laughs> and the second right. half going up. You know, they're, they're, you don't rush your way up the mountain. In fact, if you do, you will have issues. Right, and so this is something we, we each personally need to take one step at a time towards that goal of reaching that next summit. Yeah, no, I uh, look, I, I uh, I've always been fascinated about that. Um, you know, I, I lived in New York City during September 11. Um, I actually lived two blocks south of the Trade Center, um, and uh, 9/11 was my second day at this college internship that I had. I was actually working for uh, Charles Barkley's agent at IMG at the time, and um, you know, I, I was uh, prepared for it to be a you know, fascinating time, uh, great learning experience. And because of that, the events that happened on the second day, you know, it was, it was actually a pretty quiet experience. Uh, every event, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week and all the rest of them were shut down, you know, immediately after everything took place. And, I, and I'll, I'll distinctly remember, you know, being a young person in New York City, looking around and, and kind of knowing that everybody around me, as you just described, had to kind of find their way out of this immense chaos that had just been thrust upon everybody. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, to fast forward to today or maybe the events that happened in the fall of 2008. Um, yeah. The, you know, the, the phrase that we're all hearing a ton about nowadays is the new normal. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've known a couple Navy SEALs in my day and many of them love the phrase, the only easy day was yesterday. And, um, and we're always facing something kind of new and 
and totally challenging and chaotic probably the day after that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I, uh, I, I definitely think that, that your, your book, not only the first one, but the second, uh, iteration of the ant elephant is something that can help, um, a lot of people during this time and during frankly, any time in their lives is it, is it helped me because, as I mentioned, when I first read your book, um, being a huge NBA fan, you know, I was, I was kind of, you know, I, I, I often indulge into sports as a, as a bit of a release from, from what, what it is that I'm probably really thinking about. And um, at the same time, you know, I was thrilled that, that an article in Sports Illustrated was able to give me, give me a tool that, uh, that I was able to apply to sort of my waking life. And, and make and make great strides and I and I and I think Vince that uh, uh, what you do for the world is exactly that and um, you know not to sound cliche here but I think that the analogy of you helping people climb a mountain in the Himalayas is 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 pretty apt yeah yeah it's there's we're all climbing so uh, it's how you climb <laughs> yeah. yeah well well look um, uh, one, uh, I would love to do this again with you because I want to hear more about the climbing uh, stages and uh, all that you've learned during that kind of a process. Because I think that, you know, everybody's pretty fascinated about people who are able to go out and literally climb mountains. And um, the other uh, uh, last question I wanted to just add in here is uh, what is the name, if you can recall it, I can look it up, but the uh, the Stephen King book that is for writers. It's called On Writing by Stephen King. Too easy. Yep. Well, Vince, this was a lot of fun. Um, I really am so thrilled and grateful to speak to an author that made such an indelible impact in my life. And uh, so so thank you for taking the time. All the best with keeping your fridge stocked with all the college kids that are currently raiding <laughs> it on the daily. Um, they are. <laughs> well, I joined them last night. What did they call it? Shotgun. We shotgunned a beer last night, and uh, turns out I'm not very good at it. But anyway, <laughs> it's a, you know it's an acquired skill, just like climbing a mountain. You know, you, uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> I guess I got to practice, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, just uh, there's some books out there on it, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, well, my 19 and 21 year old daughters were better at shotgunning than I was. So good for them. <laughs> Good for them. Sounds like a lot of fun over there, actually. I'm so proud. So, so proud. <laughs> well, look, I, I look forward to doing this again with you. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Talk to you soon.